right, I guess it's uh, time to get started. I think I heard the bell. Hope everyone is um, as dry as possible. It's a little humid out this morning. A little damp, but it's it's Houston, right? That happens. We're glad you're here today. Uh, we are starting a, uh, a new study today. This is the first Sunday of our spring quarter. And so we're beginning a study of the book of Romans today in the adult classes. If you're visiting with us today, thank you for being here. Glad to have you. Let's begin our class by going to God in prayer, and then we will begin our study. Gracious Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to come together like this and spend some time in a study of your word, thankful for the book of Romans and for this opportunity to study it. We're thankful that you blessed us with uh, rain today, and we pray that uh, you would continue to meet those needs that we have according to your will. And we're thankful for the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, for our forgiveness, and for the church. And we pray that uh, as we study today and throughout this quarter, that you would bless our study and that we would come to better appreciate what you have done. Uh, for us in providing for our salvation through Jesus. We pray, Father, that as we assemble uh, in just a little bit for our period of worship, that uh, the worship we offer you would bring you honor and glory. We thank you, Father, for um, our health that allows us to be here, and we're thankful for uh, the uh, spiritual health that we enjoy because of Jesus, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I like the uh, the quote that I put on the handout. If you didn't get a handout, there are handouts in the back. Uh, there should be. Something might have run out. Um, from Douglas Moo, who said, Romans is one of the most interesting and engaging books in the Bible, precisely because it shapes the way we think about so much of the universe we inhabit. That's a pretty, pretty bold statement. He's not just saying that Romans shapes our view of the New Testament, though it does that. Uh, he doesn't say that it just shapes uh, our view of Christianity, though it certainly does that. He says it shapes the way we think about so much of the entire universe that we inhabit. But I think he's right. Because Romans, Romans will affect your world view. World view is, is, is one of those... Um, 
Uh, one of those terms that uh, you know you hear thrown around a lot, but basically it's the idea of, or it's the perspective that you bring to your assessment of circumstances. In other words, as you look out at the world and you see what's happening in the world and you try to, to subject the world to some kind of meaningful analysis, the perspective that you bring to that assessment is your worldview. All right? It's the lens or the lenses through which you view the world. Romans will affect that just as the entire Bible ought to affect that, all right? And Romans especially, because of all of the ground, the theological real estate that it covers. And so we have a monumental task in front of us uh, for this 13-week uh, study uh, to cover this material as best we can. Uh, we certainly won't be able to dissect each verse, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to give uh, a... Uh, you know, a, a general overview uh, of the book and uh, hopefully give ourselves uh, some information that will assist us in our own personal deeper study of the book. Romans will, ta will tell us, Paul will tell us in Romans, about uh, the sinfulness of mankind after his introductory remarks, which we'll study today, um, Paul will spend the rest of chapter 1 uh, and then all of chapters 2 and 3 establishing the fact that mankind stands in need of the gospel message. Gentiles need the gospel. Jews need the gospel. Everybody needs the gospel. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. So we'll learn about that. And then... Paul will talk about how God has made it possible for us to have the guilt of our sins removed through Jesus Christ and that our justification is based on not our ability to be perfect, not our ability to flawlessly uh, keep God's commandments, but our salvation, our justification is based on our trust, our faith in Jesus Christ as God's sacrifice for our sins. Now that doesn't mean, and we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we understand that as we go along, it, it, Romans does not teach justification by faith only. It teaches justification by faith, a faith that is submissive to God. But our justification is based on our trust in God and not on our ability to keep His commandments perfectly. Because even the best person, the most conscientious person that does his or her dead level best to always be obedient to God, the best person is going to fail in that. They're just not going to do it. As, as much as we try, our, our human weakness... Uh, exists, and because of our weaknesses, we are going to, from time to time, stumble and fall. So if our salvation is based on our ability to keep God's laws perfectly, then, then there's no hope for any of us. So our salvation is based on the foundation of our salvation, our justification, is do we trust God? Do we trust Jesus? 
Are we trying as best we can to show how much we trust Him in our submission to His will? But God knows even our best efforts are going to fall short. So our salvation has to be rooted in something else. And that's what Paul argues in the book of Romans. And it ought to give us hope. It ought to give us confidence to know that God has made provision for us and for our weaknesses, our shortcomings, our failures. So, so Paul in Romans addresses all of that, sometimes in very deep, uh, deep discussions of difficult material. But ultimately, that's, that's the lesson. Justification by faith, the faith response that is required of us, and how we should live in view of all of that. Now, today we're looking at the first section, Paul's own introduction to the book. I, I decided that, you know, sometimes when studying uh, Bible books, I, I want to take maybe the first lesson and cover other matters of introduction, you know, author, uh, occasion of the letter, purpose, what it was written from, um, you know, a lot of that background material. We'll cover some of that in just because we'll need to in the process of covering the text. But I'm not going to devote an entire lesson to that. We'll just cover that as it, as it arises. <clears throat> so today we're going to look at Paul's own introduction of the letter. <clears throat> Paul identifies himself uh, in the first verse as a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, each one of those major terms in that verse highlight a, a, a very important thing as it pertains to Paul and his, uh, his assessment of himself, how he viewed himself. Paul understood that his life was not his own, that he belonged to somebody else, and that because he belonged to somebody else, uh, that affected how he lived. And so the term servant, bond servant, the word for, the, the word for slave, Paul considered himself that, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. So that implies that Paul understood his life to be a life completely devoted to Jesus. His life was not his own. He was the bond servant of Jesus called to be an apostle. The word apostle means literally one sent, a sent one. With the implication being with apostle that, that the person who has been sent has been sent with the authority of the sender. Uh, ambassador might be a, a good, almost parallel term to apostle. Well, again, the implication is Paul has been sent by another. He's fulfilling a responsibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then set apart. Set apart for the gospel of God. He has been separated from, uh, you know, whatever else he might have been doing or could have been doing. He's been set aside from that for the purpose of being an apostle, a servant of Jesus Christ. All right? So Paul understands his mission, and that's going to come out again in the letter as we go through it, as he references his mission. And there are a lot of passages you could, you could tie in to, um, 
to that concept about Paul not being uh, his own person, belonging to another. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified, yet I live, but the life that I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul said, I, I, I belong to him. In Acts 20, verse 24, he would tell the, the elders of the uh, Ephesian church, when they were trying to... <clears throat> um, they were trying to, to, well, they were concerned about Paul going to Jerusalem because Paul had been told by God that, that problems were going to face him when he gets there. And his response to them was, I do not count my life as dear unto myself. That's how he viewed his life. He said, I just want to complete my mission. All right, so that's Paul identifying himself. Now, he also identifies in verse, uh, end of verse 1 through verse 4, some key elements of the gospel. Set apart for the gospel of God, and then he describes the gospel in, in uh, various terms. First of all, the gospel originates with God. It is the gospel of God. Paul didn't make it up. He didn't create it himself. Uh, it's God's message. It belongs to him initially, originally. It originates from him. It's the gospel of God, which was foretold by the prophets, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the, the elements of the gospel are elements that directly connected to many of the things that the prophets had spoken. And we'll talk about the word gospel uh, in in just a moment and what that involves. Um, but basically, basically it, it refers to the good news about Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. And it originated with God. It was foretold by the prophets. Think about some of the prophetic statements that, uh, that uh, foretold the blessings of being in Christ. Uh, while you're there in Romans, uh, turn back a few pages to the 26th chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 26, Paul is on trial before uh, Festus and uh, Agrippa. Agrippa specifically, I think he's addressing here. Look at verses uh, 22 and 23 of Acts 26. Paul says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, notice this, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first arise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So when Paul was on trial for preaching the gospel of Jesus, Paul said, I'm not saying anything that the prophets hadn't already said. I'm just telling you what the prophets said, that the Messiah would suffer and die and be raised from the dead. That's all I'm teaching. So the point is, the gospel was foretold by the prophets. And Paul calls attention to that. Jesus said um, in Luke 24, verse 44, all things that were written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me must come to pass. So Jesus even identified the fact that the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all spoke of him. 
So the gospel foretold by the prophets, spoken before him, promised before him. Verses 3 and 4 tell us about the subject of the gospel. And in, in broad terms, the subject of the gospel is Jesus. Concerning his son. Things that, the, that were foretold by the prophets concerning, subject matter, his son, God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he, has, see, he says a lot of things about Jesus in those two verses. That he's son of God, son of David. So that speak, son of David speaks to his humanity. Son of God, of course, to his deity. His authority. He is Lord. He is Christ, Messiah. And the crowning... Uh, event that proved his deity, the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead. Now, those are all key components to the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Paul said, This is the gospel that I preached to you, which you believe, in which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold him fast. And he said, This is that message that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the essence of the gospel message. All right? Now, that's going to be important because the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is going to occupy the major theme and thrust of Romans. We'll get to his thesis statement uh, in verses 16 and 17. Uh, momentarily, but he's he's establishing the the fact of the gospel, the the components of the gospel, some of them anyway, right here at the outset. Then Paul explains his uh, his apostolic mission, as well as the purpose of the gospel. So he's 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 talked about uh, elements of the gospel. It originates with God. It was promised by the prophets. Uh, its subject matter is Jesus through whom, Jesus Christ, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations, including you. All right? So now he's addressed the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to ultimately bring about in the lives of everybody the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name. Now that phrase, obedience of faith, comes up right here in verse uh, 5. And it's going to come up again at the end of the book. In chapter 16, verse 26. Now that's certainly not by accident. Some people have described it, and I think accurately so, as bookends to Paul's message in Romans. The obedience of faith among all the nations. Now, this is our first indication, anyway, in the book of Romans, that faith, the human response to the gospel, does not begin and end with just a... Uh, you know, a, a mental or emotional acceptance of a number of facts. 
And we'll talk in a moment about the gospel, and there are that, that a part of the gospel is the believing of certain facts. But that's not all that's involved in faith. Biblical faith involves also um, a full commitment to the object of one's faith. In this case, Jesus. So the good news of Jesus is designed to produce an obedient trust in Him. And that's going to be emphasized again in His, uh, his theme statement in verses 16 and 17. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But I just want us to notice the terminology that He uses. The obedience of faith among all the nations is what ultimately the gospel is intended to produce. And He says it at the beginning of the book and He says it at the end. And so when He talks about faith and justification by faith throughout the book, that's the kind of faith he's talking about. It's the kind of faith that is in, in complete submission and commitment to the object of the faith. Okay? But it's not our ability to live up to that commitment in perfection that is the basis of our justification. It's the fact that we are trusting God for our justification that serves as the foundation and the basis of it. Does that make sense? We'll say more about that as we work ourselves through the book. All right. Then Paul identifies the recipients of the letter. Verses 6 and into verse 6 and into verse 7. And he identifies them as belonging to Jesus, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. They are loved by God. Beloved of God, verse 7. And also from verse 7, called to be saints. Alright, there's that idea of separation. Called out. Saints. Holy. Sanctified people. Set apart people. Alright, so there's Paul's initial greeting. And in that, he says a lot about what he's going to talk about in the rest of the letter. The gospel and our faithful response to it. All right, verses 8 through 15 is uh, where Paul expresses his gratitude and offers a prayer for them. This is typical of Paul in his letters. Uh, Galatians, I guess, the only exception to that. Uh, but in the rest of his letters, Paul will offer uh, statements of gratitude uh, and uh, express to his recipients, here's what I have been praying for you, here's what I do pray for you. So he does that here. His reason for being thankful uh, involves their faith. He's grateful for their faith, through which they had developed a, a, a good reputation, widespread reputation. Look at verse 8. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He prays for them without ceasing, verses 9 and 10. That somehow, He would be able to come and visit them in Rome. He gets in that verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. <clears throat> it makes sense that 
one who is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, which is, you know, that, I mean, that was, that was terminology that, um, that we, that we're given in scripture itself. Romans 11, 13, uh, Acts 26, uh, you know, the Lord told him, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. So Paul's known as the apostle of the Gentiles. It's only natural and makes complete sense that the apostle to the Gentiles would want to visit the foremost city of the Gentile world. That was Rome. Um, and based on what Paul says about his, his plans, what he wants to do in the future in coming to Rome, it, it might well have been that Paul's desire was to come to Rome establish himself there and kind of use Rome as his uh, hub location to then go out and branch out into other parts of the world. Uh, he has a desire uh, ultimately uh, to, to make it all the way to Spain. Uh, he'll, say, um, he'll say later uh, in the book. And so... <clears throat> So it's natural that he'd want to come to Rome. So he's, he's trying to get to Rome. And it's interesting uh, how that played out. I mentioned some of this last Wednesday night in our class in here uh, as, as I chased a little rabbit. Um, but, um, but when you put... It's, it's, a very, it's, it's not only an interesting story, it's a faith-building event uh, in the providence of God of how God got Paul to Rome. We know Paul wants to go to Rome because he says that here. Now, let's, let's place Romans in its historical uh, setting. Without going into a, a lot of the detail about this, um, for lack of time, Paul was writing this letter to the Romans when he was in the city of Corinth. Now, historically speaking, from the biblical account, this would have been uh, the Acts uh, 18 uh, events when Paul goes to Corinth and he stays there for, um, uh, for, for some months. And, and when you put pieces together from Acts, from Romans and all that, you put those pieces together and it becomes clear that Paul's writing the Roman letter while he's in Corinth. What Paul is doing in, in Acts at that time is he's on his way to Jerusalem with a contribution that he has collected from the Macedonian Christians for the needy saints that are in Jerusalem. And Paul's headed to Jerusalem to deliver that. And his desire is that once he gets to Jerusalem and handles that, then he wants to come back, go to Rome, visit these folks, and then ultimately on to Spain. So he mentions that in this letter. He's in Corinth and he says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. He'll talk about that in chapters 15 and 16. On my way to Jerusalem, I'm going to deliver that, then I'm going to come back to you. That's his plan. Well, as he tries to complete that plan, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more it seems like maybe he's not going to make it to Rome. Maybe his plans are, are not going to come about. Because you find in Acts 19, verse 21... Paul mentioning uh, his, his plans. Paul resolved to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, 
after I've been there, I must also see Rome. All right? So Acts 19.21, Paul's expressing the same thing, or he expresses the same thing there that he writes to the Romans personally. I'm going to go see Rome. But then you keep reading in Acts, and you find in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 20, that Paul's coming to realize, because the Lord's informing him, that he's going to have problems when he gets to Jerusalem. Look at verse 22 of Acts 20. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul says, now I'm being told by the Spirit that I'm going to have problems when I get to Jerusalem. I want to see Rome when I finish in Jerusalem. But I don't know now how Jerusalem's going to turn out. Uh, chapter 21 of Acts, verses 10 through 13, is where Paul encounters Agabus, the prophet. It's where he takes Paul's belt and binds his hands and feet with it and prophesies, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver, the, deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now Agabus says, you're going to be Imprisoned. You're going to be bound and turned over to the Gentiles. So now, now what's happened? Paul says, I want to go to Rome. I want to preach the gospel in Rome. And then on to Spain. But now, I'm being told, I'm going to, I'm going to face imprisonment and afflictions in Jerusalem. So now, he, he doesn't know if he's going to make it to Rome or not. Until. He gets to Jerusalem, and sure enough, just like God had told him, he runs into problems. Jewish unbelievers uh, accuse him of something he didn't do, which was take a Gentile into the restricted area in, in the temple court. He didn't do that, but it causes a ruckus, causes an uproar, and, and they're about to tear Paul apart when a Roman soldier notices, and, um, and he goes and, and rescues Paul from that and places him in custody. And Paul says, as he's being you know, taken away from that angry mob, Paul says to that Roman official, he said, can I speak to those people? You know, you can imagine that Roman soldier, those people are trying to kill you. Do you want to talk to them? He said, yeah, I want to talk to them. And so he speaks to them in, their, in the Hebrew language. Acts 22, and that's where Paul goes through and, and, and recounts his conversion and all that. And it, it still doesn't, you know, still doesn't help matters. And ultimately, so he, now he's in Roman custody. And the Romans are trying to figure out what this guy did that these people are so upset with him about. So the next day, they take him before the Sanhedrin council. And Paul knows those people. He's got a history with the Sanhedrin. And he knows that they're divided, Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he just stands up and says... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm standing before you on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. And I'm a Pharisee. Well, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees didn't. And so when Paul said that, the Sanhedrin started arguing with themselves over the resurrection matter. And here's this poor Roman soldier. He still doesn't know why these people are so mad at Paul. And so he decides, uh, ultimately, he's, I'll, just, I'll just beat it out of him. And Paul says, you're not going to beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. 
And, and you can't do that to a Roman citizen. Well, that just messed things up too. Well, ultimately, Paul, in, in the course of all of this, Paul ultimately appeals his case to Caesar, which was the right of a Roman citizen to do. Paul's now been arrested. He's been, he's, he's, they've tried to figure out what's wrong. They can't figure it out. They don't know what to do with him. Paul says, I want Caesar to hear my case. Now, in the midst of all of that, when all that's going on, in Acts 23, verse 11, Luke says on a particular night that the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So, though Paul was... You know, as he's hearing about, these are all the problems that you're going to face when you get to Jerusalem. His plans to Rome, probably in his mind, are really up in the air. Now he doesn't know if he's ever going to get to Rome until the Lord appears to him that night and says, you, you will testify in Rome. So Paul's going to get to Rome, but how's he going to get there? He's going to get there because he appealed his case to Caesar, and now Rome's going to take him to Rome. Paul needed to get from Jerusalem to Rome on a mission trip. Usually you need financial support to do things like that, don't you? Travel, all that, yeah. Well, guess what? Paul's going to go on his mission trip to Rome and Rome's going to pay for it. That's how God and His providence worked out all of that. It, start, in, start reading in, in Acts 21 and read through Acts 28 and, and you'll have an amazing... Uh, account of how God providentially got Paul to Rome where Paul wanted to be in the first place. Wasn't an easy trip, but God got him to where he needed to be. And so now, back to Romans 1, this is what Paul's talking about. I want to come to Rome so that I can impart some spiritual gift that Paul believed, according to verse 12, would result in mutual encouragement and deeper faith in both him and the Roman church. Now, what was this uh, spiritual gift? There's debate about that. Was it, was it, did Paul want to impart some miraculous gift to them? Or was it a more generic thing? Uh, there, there's nothing in the word itself or the phrase itself, spiritual gift, that requires that it be miraculous. It could very well have been. Um, the term spiritual gifts certainly do refer to miraculous gifts in places like 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. But the reason why we know it's miraculous there is because the context demands it. There's not anything inherent in the Word. Those same words are used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to things that are non-miraculous. The, the gift of salvation, Romans 6, 23, same word. Paul will use the, the, the term gifts... In Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. And not every gift that he references in that passage is miraculous. Okay, so did he want to impart some miraculous gift to them? Possibly, yeah. But, but, but it may have been some other gift that he wanted to bestow on them that was spiritual in nature, but not miraculous in nature. Could have been either, but uh, you know, I don't argue, about, argue with it over that. I just don't know that we know for certain if it was a miraculous gift that he wanted to bestow or not. Then in verses 13 through 15, uh, Paul reinforces how much he wants to visit them. Uh, 
his motivation. He says, I, I consider myself a debtor under obligation to preach the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome. And so he's just basically reinforcing the fact, I'm praying that I get to come see you personally. Now, the theme statement, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or for faith. As it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. All right. This is the theme statement of the book. This is what Romans is about. Strictly speaking, as we talked about before, the gospel is the good news about Jesus, about what Jesus did for us in His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, sometimes we have taken the word gospel and kind of expanded its usage, expanded its application uh, to, to include basically uh, anything proclaimed from the New Testament. Um, any biblical truth is, is how we have, in, in, in some cases, expanded the, the, the definition of gospel. When Paul uses gospel, in Romans especially, He's not referring to the entirety of New Testament doctrine, the entirety of Christian teaching. He's referring to the good news of what Jesus did for us, that which makes our salvation possible and that in which we place our trust for our salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that things that are not related to that are not important. They are. We need to preach about the, the, the doctrine, and that might be a, a, a term that we can distinguish between gospel and doctrine in, in that sense, if we want to be that specific. All that's good and right, and we need to preach those things and teach those things. But when Paul talks about gospel in Romans, he's, not, he, he's talking specifically about, here's what God did for you in Jesus. Gospel. Good news. All right? And that's how we're going to use it as we study, because that's how Paul uses it. All right? <clears throat> now, the gospel can be viewed from different angles. There, there are a number of elements involved in the gospel that involve things that we need to believe about Jesus, what He's done for us. There are things in the gospel that we obey. The Bible uses the terminology about obeying the gospel. Paul will talk about obeying from the heart, the form of teaching that you were delivered, Romans 6. Well, what is that? I think in context, he's talking about how we uh, mimic the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the process of being baptized. First part of Romans chapter 6. So we'll cover that when we get to that chapter. So you can obey the gospel in that sense. That's biblical terminology. And, and through the gospel and our obedience to it, there are promises that we enjoy 
as a result of the gospel. And so Paul says it's this gospel, this good news that saves those who believe it. Anybody who places their trust and their confidence in that message, Jew or Gentile, they can be saved. Now verse 17 says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals God's plan to make men and women righteous. A plan that is appropriated not by merit, but by faith. Right? So when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, not just in Romans 1.17, but throughout the book, we need to understand what he's talking about. The righteousness of God in the book of Romans is not a reference to a characteristic of God's nature. Right? Is God righteous? Yeah, absolutely. Righteousness, rightness, is a characteristic that God possesses. And sometimes in the Bible, the righteousness of God is a reference to a characteristic that God possesses. That's not how Paul uses the righteousness of God in Romans. It's not the righteousness that belongs to God. It's the righteousness that comes from God. That's how Paul is using it. The righteousness of God in Romans is a reference to the righteous status that God bestows on a person who trusts in and obeys the gospel. We are sinful people. And Paul's going to make that case in the first three chapters. We need salvation. We need justification. We are unrighteous people. The question of the book of Romans is, how can God make, how can God declare unrighteous people righteous? How can God do that and be consistent with His nature? How can God, who is just, take unrighteous people and on their spiritual account put this person's righteous? When the truth of the matter is, we're not. How can God do that? That's the message of Romans. The gospel reveals, in the gospel, is revealed the righteousness, the justification that comes from God by faith. Which leads to faith. Philippians 3.9, I think, is a great commentary on this principle. Paul says his desire is that I may be found in him, found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, a justification of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul says I need a righteousness, a justified status, But I want to be found in Christ not having a justified status that has come from my own merit through works of law. But my desire is to be declared righteous 
to have that righteous status that comes through faith in Christ. That's Romans 1.17. Paul says, in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God, the righteous status that comes from God applied to our accounts, and it happens by faith. All right, that phrase, from faith to faith. Incidentally, before we look at that, one more, one more passage on the previous thing. In Romans 10, verse 3, talking about how Paul is using the word righteousness. In Romans 10, 3, Paul said the Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness. And in seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. The Jews were ignorant of God's righteousness. Did the Jewish people not know that God was a righteous being? Well, sure they did. So Paul's not using the righteousness of God as a reference to a characteristic that God possesses. The Jewish people knew that. Well, in what sense were they ignorant of God's righteousness? They were ignorant of how God makes men righteous. And so they sought to establish their own means to make men righteous. And in so doing, they did not submit themselves to the plan that God uses to make men righteous. All right, we'll see that as we go through. Now, from faith unto faith. I think the ASV of 1901 is probably the, 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 it's the best translation that I've found on that phrase because it ultimately comes down to word order. Here's the, if you just take the Greek and translate it word for word and keep the same word order, here's how that phrase sounds in Romans 1.17. Righteousness for of God in it is revealed out of faith into faith. That doesn't help us. Okay? One of the problems in translating from one language to the next is a lot of times you, you've got to figure out based on the wording, what is the word order that, that communicates the message he was trying to communicate. I think the ASV probably does the best job in that. For therein, in the gospel is revealed a righteousness, from, a righteousness of God from faith. Pause. Unto faith. For therein, in the gospel, is revealed a righteousness of God that comes to us by faith. Justification by faith. Well, what does that message do? It leads to faith. Into faith. What the gospel reveals is a righteousness, a justification that comes from God to us by faith and that leads us to believe it. Galatians 2.16, I think, is a good commentary on that point. Paul said, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, therefore, we also have believed. Paul said, when you come to realize that, that justification is not by merit, but by faith, doesn't that make you want to trust in that plan? It ought to. And that's what Paul's saying. The gospel reveals God's plan to make men righteous, and it does that by faith. That leads to faith. That reality of justification by faith makes me want to believe it. The gospel message makes me want to believe the gospel message. And so it's the righteousness of God by faith that leads to faith. All right, well, 
wish we had more time to delve into that. But we'll, we will as we go through the book because that's the theme of the book. We're going to come back to that concept. All right. So thank you much for listening this morning. I know we scurried through some of that, but um, uh, hopefully it'll be a good study this quarter. Thank you.